If you ever visit the Japan Times office and head to the sixth floor, one of the first things you'll notice as you turn the corner is the front page of the first ever edition of the Japan Times newspaper. It's got that off-white weathered paper look, but it's actually aged pretty gracefully. There's an etching of Mount Fuji at the top of the page and there's all sorts of fun old adverts from companies that have long since disappeared. But I think it's the date that's really interesting. March 22nd, 1897, 125 years ago last week. 125 years at the hot stove of news as Japan has experienced world wars, coup attempts, pandemics, earthquakes and nuclear disaster. Not one, not two, but four Olympic Games and everything that's happened in between. The Japan Times has been around for it all, delivering the news to you in English. And we'd really like to be there for the next 125 years, not only in print, but with new projects like this podcast, which is where you come in. To celebrate our 125th anniversary, for a very, very limited time only, the Japan Times is offering a lifetime discount to its premium digital plan. Forever, no matter how bad inflation gets, you'll have unlimited access to the Japan Times' content, no ads on the website, and a digital copy of the printed paper, all for just 1,600 yen a month. That offer really is limited though. It expires on March 31st, if you're interested. For more details on how to sign up, head to jtimes.jp slash jt125dd. That's jtimes.jp slash jt125dd. That link is in the show notes. And thank you very much for your support. Just a heads up before we begin, this episode does discuss suicide. If you or anyone you know are affected by the issues discussed in this episode, I've put links to resources in the show notes. Hello and welcome back to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. Over the past couple of years, many of the worst impacts of the pandemic have been felt by women. Women in Japan have been more likely to lose their jobs, face increased pressure at home, and be the victims of domestic violence. Data released earlier this month showed that in 2021, suicides increased among women here for the second year running, whilst at the same time declining amongst men. This week, I speak with Hanako Montgomery, a reporter for Vice Japan, about Japan's poor record on gender equality, why the pandemic has impacted women in particular, and what the country is trying to do about the rise in suicides among women and girls. Hanako Montgomery, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So Hanako, Japan is ranked as one of the worst performing countries in the world in terms of gender equality. In 2021, it placed 120th out of 156 countries in the World Economic Forum's gender equality list, and it scored similarly poorly before the pandemic. I think we could spend the entire episode answering this question alone, but to actually give some context to that ranking, what are some of the ways that this gender inequality manifests in society here? Mm. So there are so many different ways that I think women are underrepresented in Japan. Of course, the most glaring probably is politics. Abe Shinzo, when he was a prime minister, I believe there was one female <laughs> in his cabinet. With Kishida, it's a bit better. Now we have three. That is three out of 21. Uh, yeah, exactly. Three out of 21. Uh, so when you have such an underrepresentation of women in politics, you know, some of the bills that women are trying to pass that 
greatly improve gender equality or support for single mothers for for women in general, they might not get past as much or we just don't have those conversations in places that we should be having. And then, of course, if you go beyond politics for the lay person, if you look at the way women work in Japan, a lot of it is part-time work. Mm. And those were the first jobs to go during the pandemic. And that greatly affected women more so than than men. And even just outside of the pandemic, women were already making less than men. So it's mm-hmm. just all these issues sort of compounding and growing. And, you know, it's there's not really much that's been done to assist these women. And here we are. Right. Some statistics on that temporary or non-regular employment you're talking about. According to the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications, only 40% of working women are considered to work full time compared to 70% of men. So there's a lot fewer women holding these more secure, full-time, probably better-paying jobs. Yeah, it's also the rate of women returning to work after they have children. So in Japan, a lot of the times we see women taking on the primary responsibilities for child rearing and child raising. And I think the return rate for women back into the workforce is something like 50%. Mm-hmm. So we're really seeing a lot of women fall off the corporate career track when they have children and far fewer of them returning back to the positions they originally held. Yeah, it's, you know, Japanese society is sometimes described as an escalator society, right? So if you go to a great high school, go to a great college, you get a great job. But if, if you're a woman and you're expected to have a family and only have a family, then you are no longer part of that escalator. You are on the side, maybe waiting to get on, but you just can't. And so if we look at the top of that escalator in the corporate world, what percentage of leadership positions are held by women? I think in the corporate world, about 10% of those positions are held by women. So that means women still aren't in these rooms where you're making decisions, where the company is going, and these really significant jobs that people should be having. There's no reason why a woman should not be in that position. It doesn't mean she's underqualified. It's just she can't seem to have the tools to get there. Mm -hmm. You've written several articles for Vice about sexism in schools in Japan. Is it fair to say that this kind of gender inequality begins in the classroom? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we think of education as the first or maybe even the best tool to change society. But when we look at the way children are educated in Japanese schools, we see there are certain rules that girls have to follow that boys don't have to follow. Mm. So uh, something that I wrote recently was about the ponytail ban in high schools. And, you know, this is a rule that's quite, quite dated. (laughs) Uh, And the rule was in place because they didn't want girls to distract boys with the nape of their neck, Mm. right? Sexually excite men. And if you just take a step back and think about that, it's, I mean, it's wild (laughs) to have that kind of rule for young girls, for minors to think about, oh, you know, I can't expose the nape of my neck right now because I could be sexually exciting my male peers. Mm. It reminds me of like Victorian England where everyone would go to the beach and (laughs) show their ankles for fear of sexually exciting men. Right, exactly. Yeah. And some of the social reactions that you saw in Japanese social media were pretty funny. I mean, it was like, why are we making these rules to suit people who might get excited by the neck when in the general population that might not be the case? So we have ponytail bands. Sometimes we see rules that ban colored underwear. So girls have to wear white underwear and then they have checks, right? So in some schools, girls would have had to stand in the hallway and then their teachers check the color of their bras or their underwear Mm. and they have to lift up their skirts. And of course, you know, some of these rules... very invasive. Yeah. I mean, it's an invasion of privacy and 
some schools do separate when they do those checks. So they get the boys to line up in the gymnasium and then the girls in the classroom. But when you have those rules in place, girls grow up understanding that they have to behave and act in a certain way. Uh, And then, of course, within the classroom, right, there are certain subjects, quote unquote, that seem more masculine. So you have mathematics, science. I'm sure you remember the 2018 Tokyo Medical University scandal. There were reports that women didn't get um, accepted into that university purely because of their gender. So they had the scores. Mm. They were able to get into these extremely competitive classrooms, but they didn't get a place because of their gender. And I mean, there's no other way of describing that besides sexism. Right. The university was found to be rigging the entrance exam so that women had to score higher than men to gain entrance to the medical school. And it wasn't just Tokyo Medical University either. I think nine more universities were caught up in the scandal. And one of them came out with this very strange excuse for their actions, which was to say that women mature faster than men. Therefore, the men applying for the positions at their medical school needed an extra helping hand with their scores. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just question mark. (laughs) And then you also have, you know, the excuse that, hey, if we accept women into these positions, they might leave because they want a family or they have to raise children, Uh, which again goes back to the fact that women can't really find themselves going back to work and, and having those same positions that they may have once had. So yes, for sure, education, the way classrooms are structured in Japan contribute to this. I do know that certain school districts and the education board in Japan are trying to change that. So I think starting April 1st, all Tokyo prefectural schools will ban these so-called burak kosoku, right? Mm. Draconian school rules. But if you go to the more regional schools, you still have these, these rules. And a lot of that doesn't get changed because they don't see a reason to change. But mm. of course, they sort of infringe on basic individual rights. And coming back to how women are treated in the workplace for a moment, I think one of the most high profile examples of this kind of sexism we're talking about was the story that emerged about this time last year, just before the Olympics were due to happen, when the president of the Tokyo Organising Committee, Yoshiro Mori, came out and said that women basically shouldn't be put in boardroom positions because they would talk for too long. He ended up resigning eventually as a result of his comments, but I think that does speak to some of the attitudes that exist within the workplace and exist very high up in the leadership of big organizations. For sure. Yeah. That was, I think, so representative of the things that we've been seeing. And to have him resign was quite a big step forward. It acknowledged that, hey, we can't be saying these comments anymore. We can't let this slide. But to have the president of the Olympic Committee say something like that and for no immediate action to be taken, Mm. it, it took a couple of days, as I recall, for him to actually step down. That again shows that so many of these rooms are occupied by males. And when we keep talking about women in this way where we enforce these stereotypes, these gender stereotypes, that they talk too much, that they don't belong in these rooms, it not only affects the current situation, but I think it also affects future generations. So young children growing up hearing these things, they might sort of absorb this thinking, this mentality, and then continue representing that when they also become adults and they take on positions where they're making the decisions.
So we have this large and ongoing gender inequality pre-pandemic. How has the pandemic exacerbated these problems? In many, many different ways, I think. The first glaring thing that we see is the suicide rates Mm. for men and for women. So in Japan, suicide has been a pressing societal issue and the suicide rate was decreasing for about 11 years. But then once the pandemic hit, the number of female suicides increased significantly. I think Mm. it was like a 15% increase from the year before. You know, that is one huge, huge impact of the pandemic. And there were so many different reports about, you know, how women were being treated in in their workforce, about how they had to take on more childcare positions in their home. And of course, if you look at the way women are employed in Japan, about half or a little bit more than half of part-time work, those positions are taken on by women. Mm. And those were the first jobs to go during the pandemic because non-essential jobs were basically, they reduced their shifts or they were told to stay at home. We saw a huge amount of job losses around the world. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, that primarily affected women. Right. I think in April 2020, kind of around the time that the first state of emergency was introduced, the number of women in the workforce declined by about 700,000 compared with the month before, which was nearly twice the figure that it was for men, which was about 390,000. So yeah, heavily skewed towards women. Exactly. Yeah. And When women are making less than men, then the question is, how do they support themselves? If they're living alone, who do they have to rely on? Or if they have families, how do they support their children? How do they support their husbands who could have also lost their jobs? So there are so many different questions and problems that arise when we see this kind of workforce style Mm -hmm. in Japan. And coming back to these figures you mentioned about the number of people that died by suicide throughout the pandemic. I think I'm correct in saying that the number of women who died by suicide increased while the number of men who died by suicide actually continued to decrease. But the increase for women was so great that it actually reversed that 11-year declining trend Mm -hmm. in total suicide numbers in Japan. Yeah, exactly. The suicide rates were falling consistently. And then in 2020, when we saw a huge, huge number of female suicides, uh, especially around October of 2020, the suicide rate just jumped and it reversed the trend like you mentioned. And what are some of the factors behind this increase in suicides amongst women? Yeah, so it's hard to always pinpoint one reason for Mm. a woman or a, a man to complete suicide, to die by suicide. But there are a number of factors, I think, that are at play. And based on the statistics that we see from the Tokyo Police Department and the National Police Department, a lot of this has to do with being diagnosed with depression and also economic factors and issues within the home. Mm. So I think the three leading causes for this increase in suicide rates is depression, loss of jobs or economic issues, and then also family issues. But again, you know, there are so many different other factors at play, right? When when someone has depression, depression isn't the only thing that could be affecting them. I think this, again, goes to show that when we have unstable work structures, when women are expected to take on a lot of these pressures in the home, it tends to have extreme physical and mental impacts. And last year, you wrote an article for Vice and made a video as well about the story of one survivor of a suicide attempt. Her name was Nazuna Hashimoto. What was her story? Yeah, so she is now 22. 
and she used to work at a gym mm. during the pandemic. Uh, but once the pandemic hit, the number of shifts she had uh, decreased, right? So I think she was working about a quarter of the shifts that she had before. And she was expected to stay at home and she was living with her mother, but she was extremely isolated because of the pandemic. So not having the social interactions that she might have had before with her coworkers, spending most of her time at home with her mother, experiencing a lot of isolation and sadness and loneliness and no way of sort of dealing with this stress. It all just kind of overwhelmed her and she attempted suicide twice. And both times she remembers just how sad her family was, right? So she remembers mm. sort of waking up in the hospital and seeing her mother's face and seeing her her boyfriend's face and sort of almost feeling like she had disappointed them in a way. It must have been so extremely difficult for her, but she was still thinking about the ways it affected her family and she was still worried about them. So it's sad. It's extremely sad for a person to think that they don't have a space where they're being listened to, where they can't get the support. Now she has created an app called Blost and it connects counselors to people who need therapy. Mm. And her primary reason for that is because she hopes people like her get help when they need help and it's economically, financially accessible to them. Mm. So she found it hard to get help when she felt like she needed it most? Yes, yeah. She found it difficult to get help for a number of reasons. One of them being therapy in Japan is extremely expensive. Mm. So one therapy session can cost anywhere between, uh, in, in US dollars, it's around 50 to $200, right? And it's not covered usually by national health insurance. So when you have these extreme costs and then a lot of the stigma around mental health, because it is a problem within the mind or it's not something that you visibly see, people might think that you don't need as much support for it, that mm. you don't need medicine for it, right? It's like, oh, just shake yourself out of it, right? So her goal, yes, is also to make it cheaper for people. And, you know, just to go to a hospital to get this care is pretty difficult. You have to mm. really take a brave step forward. Uh, but having an app, it makes it accessible and it destigmatizes a lot of the issues that we see when people are trying to get help. Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit, Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market-leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress-free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specialises in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. At a government level, is anything being done to support women throughout this pandemic? Because... 
having suicide numbers increasing for two years in a row should surely be sounding some alarm bell somewhere. Yeah, so last year, after the suicide statistics were released for 2020, the Japanese government appointed Tetsushi Sakamoto as the loneliness minister. So he has a budget, basically, of $55 million, and $12 million of that is supposed to aid women specifically. So with this budget, he was expecting to create spaces for women to get help on social media and also online, also provide a lot of financial support to these NPOs that are directly serving women. So on the surface, right, it looks like we're getting support for Mm. people in need. Although $12 million is not very much in the grand scheme of things. Yes, it's not very much in the grand scheme of things. And how that money is being spent. Um, There's not a lot of clarity on that. And for people who are experiencing this extreme loneliness, for people who need support for their mental health, they are not directly seeing the benefits of that. So if, you know, we speak to NPOs that are directly assisting women in need, um, so not just women who are experiencing mental health burdens from raising their families or from raising their children, but also women who are experiencing homelessness Mm. or job loss, they will say that they are not seeing the benefits of this. Women are still on the street not able to get warm food, not able to get proper housing. Women are experiencing domestic violence in the home. And of course, also young women, so students, right? Um, They might be experiencing stresses from online school or just sort of shukatsu, right? Going on to building their careers, but then Mm. they also have these family stresses. So it's, it's a step forward, sure. But as you said, it's not financially that significant and it's certainly not enough to reverse the trend as we have seen with the 2021 statistics and even if it was a greater amount of money it still kind of feels like a sticking plaster over the you know in the context of the issues you've discussed whereby there are so many pre-existing conditions before the pandemic that were creating gender inequality from representation at high levels in politics or management to you know the kind of work that women have i know that the government every five years publishes this basic plan for gender equality, which is supposed to be promoting a a more equal society in terms of gender. And the latest version of that was approved in late 2020, I think it was December 2020. What's contained in that and have those plans for promoting gender equality actually proved useful or effective? So a lot of that plan was to improve the position of women in society, right? So to decreased discrimination, gender-based violence, domestic violence, and they have these goals by 2030. But so little has been done in order to achieve these goals. Part of these goals outlined overwork. So again, overwork is another huge issue in Japan. And Japan still hasn't been able to create the proper structures for people to take more paid time off or not as much overtime work. And by increasing the number of women in parliament and in corporate positions, they expected to have greater representation, but we still don't see a lot of female voices. Mm. One huge issue also in Japan is the fact that a lot of this is discussed in the binary, right? So it's men and women. But then we also have a population 
women of LGBTQ individuals who just don't fall into this and they might not be getting the assistance that they need, right? Mm. So if there's a new bill passed for married couples, LGBTQ people can't get married in Japan still. So you have another group of women, another group of men who aren't getting the assistance that they need. And the pandemic has put a spotlight on issues that have long existed in Japan. It's certainly, of course, exacerbated a lot of these issues, but it's not just the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most embarrassing things for the government is that back in 2003, they created this target as part of one of these basic plans for gender equality, where they were trying to get 30% of government leadership to be women by 2020. And this was a plan that was emphasized again by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was in office from 2012 to 2020, so had eight years in power. And he like, really promoted the idea of womenomics, a yes, campaign that was meant right. to empower women. But in 2020, when they released the most recent version of the basic plan for gender equality, they had to push that target back to kind of this vague date sometime before 2030, I think is the language, because they had so dramatically failed to reach the 30% target they'd set in 2003. Exactly, yes. Womenomics, right? <laughs> What a great word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to have to push it back, I think, says so much about. The issues in Japanese society currently, right? So around 2018, when the world sort of saw a huge, you know, Me Too movement and people really calling to arms about improving workplace and, um, you know, political spheres for women, we saw more leaders talking about these issues and trying to pass these bills that would improve representation. But, you know, to have to push it back to 2030, I mean, it's just an admittance that Japan isn't able to do what it said it was going to do. When you're talking to people in the MPO space, how do they think that the lack of representation should be addressed? Yeah, so in the political sphere, right, we see a lot of NPOs discussing just the need for more female representation. And part of that is to increase women's participation in politics. We still do see more men running for, for office and for government positions by. Kind of enforcing this idea that women do have a space to talk about these issues and will be elected if they run would also improve the current situation. And then once we actually have women in the cabinet, in, in the diet, not mocking them. And then, of course, that sort of carries over into the workforce, right? So having female corporate leadership positions, which means the work culture has to change. So、mm. women who have families, right, they shouldn't be stigmatized and they shouldn't be. Told that they might leave one day so they can't get the position, they can't carry on with this job in fear that, you know, the, I guess the whole company would fall to the ground <laughs> if, if, if a woman left for three, four months to、mm. take care of her child and come back. So, changing that. And then also, of course, improving women's pay. I believe men still earn around. 100,000 yen more than women、uh, immediately after graduation. So, if we're not paying women the same amount for the jobs that they're doing, then how can we ever achieve a society where we see women as equals to men?、Mm-hmm. I think there's an argument for the other side of it as well, which is creating more space for men to actually be able to take time off work, to take parental leave, to be able to leave work on time or early to look after children so that the entire Burden of raising a family doesn't fall on the shoulders of women. For sure, yeah. I think the rate of men taking paternal leave in Japan is 
really quite low. Right. I think that figure is actually around 6% of men take some form of parental leave when their children are born. And I remember when Shinjiro Koizumi, the former environment minister, took 12 days of parental leave when his child was born. He was he made headlines yeah. everywhere in Japan for his kind of bold new step into a modern world. It's just, it's, it's incredible. Um, last year, I think three government officials to encourage men to understand some of the burdens that women go through when they bear children. I think they wore those like maternity suits. You know what I'm talking about? Like the weighted... What's it like kind of to have... Like simulate a pregnancy? Yes, for I think a day so that they could physically and mentally understand the weight of women. (laughs) And yeah, and exactly. So encouraging men to take paternity leave and sort of destigmatizing this idea that by taking paternity leave, you're not masculine enough or you're not doing enough as a man to provide for your family you know the days of thinking of you know a family as a woman just cooking and cleaning and then a man earning the money i mean if they want to that is of course fine but to expect that from an entire population is is wrong So far, this episode has really focused on the effect of the pandemic on women in Japan. But I wonder how does what we're seeing here fit into the broader global conversation about the pandemic's effect on gender equality? I think we've been seeing the pandemic have really significant effects on gender equality in most parts of the world. And one of the clearest statistics that we've seen on this issue is the World Economic Forum has said now that it's going to take around 135 years, right? So more than a century for the gender gap to close. Before the pandemic, when they published this prediction using 2019 data, that was 99 years. So during the pandemic, we've seen 36 years added to the 99 years for the gender gap to close. And this has shown just how difficult it's been for women during the pandemic. One thing that is heavily discussed is the effect on uh, domestic violence victims. Mm. So when people are expected to stay home and if home for them is not a safe space, they are expected to spend hours, days, weeks with their abusers. Women during the pandemic have experienced a lot of the same economic fallout, the responsibilities within the home that women in Japan are also seeing. So there's still so much more to be done. And the pandemic has really shined a light on the issues that we see currently. But, you know, we can't really stop at just that, right? Now, a lot of the conversation should be around how do we make spaces better for women? How do we get them support that they need? That's, I think... A lot of the ways NPOs and governments are expecting to go, will they be successful? I don't want to say time will tell because we shouldn't wait on time for things to change. That was Hanako Montgomery, and I'll link the article she's written for Vice in the show notes. My thanks to her for joining me for this episode. In the Japan Times this week, Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car won the Academy Award for Best International Feature Film at the Oscars on Sunday. It is the second Japanese film to win in the Best International Feature Film category, the only other one being Yojiro Takita's Departures, which won back in 2009. Also, price hikes for food and other daily necessities will hit consumers in Japan at the start of April, reflecting rising global prices on commodities such as wheat and oil, as well as the declining value of the yen. 
Kagome, the big tomato company, plans to raise tomato ketchup prices by up to 9%. Suntory will raise the price on its Yamazaki 12-year-old whiskey to 10,000 yen per 700ml bottle, up 18%. And the government will increase the price of imported wheat it sells to the private sector by around 17%. On that happy note, I'm off to buy as much flour and tomato ketchup as I can carry. I had additional editing help on this week's episode from Dave Cortez. We'll be back next week. But until then, as always, Potskare Summer.